0: Hello and welcome to this podcast about The Lancet's latest country series. And the country in question is Israel, and what a fascinating country it is to discuss. We've also produced the podcast, with the help of colleagues involved in this series, in both Hebrew and Arabic.
1: Hello welcome to
0: the the To find these podcasts, please visit our dedicated Health in Israel webpage on thelancet.com. The broad thrust of this series is to show how health in Israel has the potential not only to flourish for all of its citizens and to be a model for other country health systems, but also to be a bridge to help bring unity where there have been difficulties. The series' authors call on the Israeli government to reposition health as a priority for all Israeli citizens and ask that the government and related bodies be held accountable for implementing change and for realising the recommendations laid out in each of the five papers in the series. Well, let's now discuss the series in more detail in this extended podcast. I've been doing this with the help of one of the leaders of the Health in Israel series. Here he
1: is introducing himself. My name is Mark Clarfield. I'm Professor of Geriatrics at the Ben-Gurion University of Negev in Beersheba, Israel, and it's nice to be talking to you today. The
0: first series paper gives a good overview of how health services are organized in Israel, as well as documenting some of the very real challenges that exist. Can you briefly explain how Israel organizes its health system? And I think a brief look back into Israel's history is relevant here.
1: History explains a lot, and uh, like the NHS, our health system started around 1940. 19- forty eight in a formal sense when the country declared independence. But we started organizing our health services, both preventive and acute, back in the nineteen tens and twenties. So things go back a very long way. We have a system that is basically universal health care for everybody here. I would say that ninety eight percent of patients' needs, ninety five percent you could argue about it, are covered by the health system with very, very little payment. The point of, of care. And how do you summarize the strengths of Israel's health system today? The universal coverage that I mentioned. Israel is a small country. We are a highly academic health service. So that all of the Israel's general teaching are, are all academic centers. They all have residency programs. They all have medical schools attached to them. Primary care is extremely well organized and covers the whole country from the top to the bottom with excellent access. So, the hospitals are good institutions, well run, highly academic. The primary care services are very strong, and they integrate electronically in a way that is described in one of the articles of the series, in a way that's, I think, fairly world-leading. And that has to do with Israel being a kind of startup nation and a highly technological, technophilic country. And medicine is highly technophilic. here, So we communicate with each other. Patient comes into the hospital. We can communicate with their family doctor with the medical record. The family doctor knows the patient's at hospital. That that makes for enormous advantages.
0: Some real strengths there, but the series does also articulate some very real challenges that the health system is facing. How would you summarize these? We're talking about paper one still in the series the
1: problems in the health system relate to in in large part to the way it's organized which you know and funded the problem of organization has to do with the ministry of health Previously, and I don't mean it now, previously over the years was a relatively weak ministry. The ministry had trouble supervising the health service and planning for the future. We still have some of that problem. We still have some leftover issues that the health ministry has to deal with. For example, there are three types of owners of these hospitals that I alluded to before. The government owns about a third. One of the large health fund runs another third. And another third are run primarily by non-for-profits. And because the government owns some of the hospital that it's meant to supervise, and you can understand why there might be a perception from time to time that there's an unlevel playing field where the hospitals own, not owned by the government are, perceive themselves as not getting the same kind of resources. And the ministry is distracted by these issues, and the ministry, ministry of Health's job is to think into the future and not deal with day-to-day problems. With respect to funding, 7% of our GMP goes to health and it's certainly lower in Israel than the OECD average. So we are underfunded by if you look, you know, comparatively at other health systems in in developed countries. And as a result, we're missing certain things. One of the big things we're missing is we have a very low rate of acute hospital beds per 1000 population, something like just over 2. And that means that our hospital acute hospital beds are full 12 months of the year. We don't have enough reserve. And if anything catastrophic should happen, like, for example, an earthquake. We are on the Zero african rift. We, there are earthquakes here every 100 years. We do have wars here from time to time. What if a mass casualty event like a you know factory blows up or you know these things happen in even the most well-developed countries? If we are lacking a reserve in acute hospital beds, anything can tip us over into, into a crisis. And every winter with the flu season, even though we try and vaccinate people, there's always a crisis. Some of the acute medical, internal medicine wards run at 200% of their capacity. And one of the absolutely crucial
0: aspects when talking about health services And health service provision to the Israeli population is obviously to look at the two main groups that make up the Israeli population for receiving health services, Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. What has been done, certainly at the ministry level, to ensure that both these populations are getting equitable access to
1: health services in Israel? There are issues beyond the health system that affect disparities in health. For example, let's take something as simple as the number of parks in a, in a town that you know, is supposedly not under the aegis of the Ministry of Health or the health services. But if you don't have enough parks, then there aren't places for children to play, and there aren't places for people to exercise, etc., etc. There are three kinds of cities in Israel, those in which are primarily Jews live, those in which primarily Arabs live, and those that are mixed cities. Haifa and Jerusalem are mixed cities but let's take a typical arab village in israel where where many arab israelis live you'll find very few parks in those towns and cities why number one Previous sort of Arab family culture did not look favorably on public spaces, so that the idea of a public park wasn't part of the culture. And secondly, I don't want to I don't want to blame uh, the Arab population for not having parks due to their culture, though that that has something to do with it. The government, uh, over the years, and this is not the case in health, and I think we underline this well in this series. The government has not provided adequate resources in many aspects to the Arab population as it has to the Jewish. There's been some discrimination. The government recently has made some very strong efforts to deal with this situation. For example, I think they put about 5 billion shekels into a long-term plan to deal with this. There are also programs in the ministry to deal with health disparities that affect things that the Ministry of Health has control over. But there are many other things, as I alluded to, the country's trying to deal with so that the Arab population gets the same kind of health statistics in the end, as the Jewish population. The thing's improved enormously over the last couple of decades, but there still is a gap. The second paper in the
0: series. This is looking specifically at maternal and child health in Israel. And I think the first thing to state here is that there has been some remarkable progress, hasn't there, in in this aspect
1: of healthcare. We have some of the best life expectancy. We'll just jump into geriatrics for a minute. We'll come back. We have some of the best life expectancy figures in the world. And of course, you only have good life expectancy if you have good child and maternal health statistics, and we have excellent ones. And that. That I, you know, I mentioned earlier that we started our health system before the country was formed in 1948 by investing heavily in the 1910s and 20s and 30s in what we called tipat chalav, which is Hebrew for a drop of milk. These were maternal and child clinics that were spread all over the country and dealt with preventive issues. For maternal and child health, and as we all know, if you vaccinate children, make sure they have a good diet, make sure that you know they 're not exposed to all kinds of toxins and dangers, they will if you leave them alone, grow up to be healthy and that 's what we 've seen in Israel. maternal health is very well developed in a developing country like uh, Israel. the strategy has been to to concentrate the birthing services in well-run units. They're often, the deliveries are done by midwives, but they have the backup of skilled obstetricians. My own hospital in southern Israel, Soroka Hospital, has 14,000 deliveries a year, which is an astronomical number for a developed country. You can get those numbers in sub-Saharan Africa, but you don't have the kind of high-tech and excellent Uh, clinicians we have here so the maternal and child statistics are a combination of a healthy society excellent preventive services widespread vaccination rates here are you know in the high 90s
0: challenges do remain, and, and a lot of these are cultural and very specific to the diaspora that is Israel. Child poverty is very real in certain situations and it, and it disproportionately affects Arab children and also some Jewish children, ultra-Orthodox Jewish children. We
1: have these two populations that are kind of homologues of each other. The Arab population is basically one that was a sort of a developing population like it was in you know, uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago that was like poor populations you'd see in the developing world. And so they're coming out of that by industrialization, education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they're still, for reasons unrelated to the health service completely. The health service is, is the most integrated part of the country. But for socioeconomic reasons, education, employment, etc., there still is a lot of poverty in the Arab sector. That's not poverty that people have chosen. People haven't chosen to be poor in the Arab sector. Oddly enough, in the ultra-orthodox Jewish sector, this population chooses. Not to be poor. They they choose to live a kind of lifestyle that ensures that they won't make a good living. And what do they do? The men, for the most part, will study in religious institutions. The women, to a large extent, do work outside the home, but they have a very high birth rate, something like six per woman. So you have many ultra-Orthodox families who have many children where the father doesn't work voluntarily. It's not that he can't work. He doesn't work. Again, the health system can only do so much. The health system guarantees the mother and child clinics. The health system guarantees the high vaccination rates. We do what we can. But as you know, socioeconomic status has a grave effect on health. Part of the Arab population and the Jewish ultra-Orthodox population suffer from similar health statistics for analogous but different
0: reasons. And what is the Israeli Ministry of Health doing to address these disparities?
1: Well, they're doing two things. Number one, as your readers will learn by reading in in the introduction, the Ministry of Health is responsible for supervising the providers of care. And the providers of care are four health maintenance organizations or sick funds, depending on what you want to call them. All four sick funds have made a strong effort to deal with the health disparities for their insurees. And the Ministry of Health has funded and is running a special unit that is meant to oversee all of the work meant to deal with health disparities. So they have realized that this is an issue. There's a special unit that that, uh, supervises programs to deal with this. The health ministry is is meant to be supervising the activities of the four HMOs that are all quite active in this field. So we have seen changes over the last five years, and I hope we'll see more in the the next 10. But again, as I say, the socioeconomic determinants of health sometimes trump the best efforts of a health ministry. Just one more point on paper two, Mark. I was interested to read the
0: the prominence and the importance of public health nurses within the infrastructure in relation to the delivery of maternal and child uh, health services. Tell us a bit more about
1: public health nurses. These public health nurses started, or the institution started, as I said, 56 years ago with these mother and child clinics. They're well-trained, they're they're, well-supported, it's an honourable profession. Everybody has them in their neighborhood, and these, and every, as I said before, everything is computerized now. These special nurses can follow up all of the children in the community in which they live. They know who they are. In my own family, both my wife and I are academic doctors, both professors. It was the public health nurse that picked up that our youngest son, when he was a baby, had a hearing deficit. So they do a great job picking up disease, at advising mothers in pregnancy and after pregnancy, breastfeeding, vaccination rates, uh, accident prevention, all of the above, and they they do a great job, and they've been doing a great job for 60, 70 years. So they, you know, they have a certain pride of, of, of the work that they do, and and they're valued by the community in which they live.
0: Turning to the third paper in the series. This is looking at disparities in relation to non-communicable diseases across the two main Israeli populations, disparities in NCDs specific to the Jewish population and also to the Arab population. Life expectancy is lower among the Arab population in Israel. Why is this? Yes, a couple of of years lower. And it
1: it has to do primarily with the uh, social determinants of health, not the health service. In other words, the service is available to everybody pretty well for free, and it's a small country. So it's, it's generally not a problem for people to access from a geographic point of view or a service point of view. Mainly, the differences are, are, are related to socioeconomic status. And the reason that we know this beyond the literature is if you when you say Arabs and Jews, that's a big division. If you look at subdivisions among the Arab population, the Jewish population, the Arab population has Muslims, which are the majority, Christians, which are a minority, and Druze, which is a, a special group. We have a special little panel on that in, in one of the articles. It turns out that the the Arabs of Christian religion, for historical reasons, are on average better educated than the Arabs of uh, Muslim religion. And they, not surprisingly, have health statistics that are pretty well equivalent to educated Jewish Israelis. So socioeconomic status here explains a lot. If you have educated Arab population, they'll do well in health just like you know anybody else in the south of Israel? We have a special Arab population called the Bedouin, people who used to be camel herders and you know wanderers. With with the borders in the Middle East having been closed for a long time and closing even more, unfortunately, these people have had to settle in villages and towns, and they have some interesting sociological things that will explain some of this health. First of all, although polygamy in Israel is banned legally, it's basically tolerated in southern Israel among the Bedouin population when you have polygamy you've got big families you've got a man and it's not a man it's not a, a wife with a woman with two husbands it's husband with two or three wives, and these families can be very big. If you've got 18 children across two wives or 25 children across three, the socioeconomic status of that family is going to be worse than a family with two or three children. The second cultural issue in the Arab community in general, and the Bedouins in particular, is consanguinity, that is people marrying their cousins. That's very common in the Arab world in general for cultural reasons. Socioeconomic status, the social disparities, and the cultural Issue of polygamy and consanguinity probably explain much of it.
0: We are seeing some specific behaviours and disease profiles that associated, say, for example, with the Arab community, higher instance of smoking and more physical inactivity. So that's contributing at a population level to increase cardiovascular disease, whereas in the Jewish community, incidence of cancer is greater than it is in the Arab population. So just a comment on these disparities.
1: The rate of smoking among Arab men is very high, like 50, 60 percent in some parts of the country. And that's cultural because people only smoke because they, they perceive it as something cool or something manly, and smoking has become uncool in many parts of Israel, but it's not uncool among Arab men to smoke. Arab men smoke a lot. There's no doubt about that. Exercise is something that's, sort of, that's related, again, to socioeconomic status. Poor, hardworking people don't have the time or energy To exercise when they're finished a a day of a job that may not be easy and may not be that pleasant and although difficult may not provide sort of the aerobic exercise that that we know people need and i i mentioned earlier in in the call the idea that it's it's hard to exercise in arab towns just because of the way they're built the roads are not good there aren't parks there aren't places to jog and it's not part of the culture it's changed a lot and it's changing but we still have that that problem. The Arabs do have an advantage over the Jewish population. They have less cancer, colon cancer and other cancers. They've got less, although that gap, unfortunately, is
0: narrowing. Again, the key question is what needs to be done? How is or how should Israel address these disparities in social determinants of health in relation to non communicable disease? The
1: Ministry of Health is active in planning for this, but the various sick funds, as I mentioned before, there are four in the country that provide care to the whole country, have also become involved nowadays in encouraging non-smoking clinics, they prescribe the non-smoking drugs, they have support groups. It's more expensive for them to look after sick people with lung cancer than it is to prevent it. They have become involved. The Arab community has become more involved in realizing the dangers of smoking. But we're early days in that the community has to realize that smoking is unacceptable. The HMOs are working hard under the ministry's supervision to prevent smoking and to treat it among people who do smoke. On the exercise scene, there are many more programs in the communities that encourage people to exercise. We've got a long way to go there. Diet is a problem because the traditional Arab diet, the Mediterranean diet, as we know, is very helpful. You know, lots of legumes and olive oil and olives and vegetables and not much meat. that that's changing. You can find a McDonald's now in every Arab town, and we know the havoc that, that wreaks with people's health. So when people get more money they, and, and more leisure time, there's a kind of a period of times where they start to do more unhealthful things, even though they're getting richer and better educated, that negate the beneficial effects of education and increasing income.
0: We've been talking about paper three there, and it's the heart of the series, and it's, it's a fascinating paper. Paper four concerns health and care for Israel's increasingly elderly population. How would you summarize Israel's approach to elderly care? And what needs to be done to ensure that elderly people, to make sure that they're not left behind as the health system
1: adjusts moving forward? Well, first of all, the good news, I'll start with the good news. Israel, both Arab and Jew in Israel, the elderly still maintain a certain respect that they may have lost in other Western countries. So both populations, by dint of their religions and their philosophy. They're very respectful and loving to their parents. This is something that people note when they come here. So that helps a lot. If you're elderly and you've got a supportive family, that helps. Now that's not the health service, you know, does it it hitches a ride on that. As I mentioned earlier, we have very, very high life expectancy in the country. So old people live a long time here. Among men, it's about third in the world. We have the third highest life expectancy for men and about the 12th highest for women in all the countries in the world. So we're doing something right now. What aren't we doing right? Well, elderly people are the ones that tend to fill the acute hospital beds of a service and tend to visit the clinics of a health service. The general health system, insofar as it could be better funded and insofar as it could be less crowded and insofar as a better reserve, this would help the elderly without you targeting the elderly. Elder-specific programs, again, there's a lot of activity in prevention, There's a lot of activity in social care and social activities for the elderly. There's a ministry in Israel that's not the health ministry there's a ministry of retired persons that's meant to deal with the kind of socioeconomic status and situation of older people. So that helps a lot too. There's a problem if an elderly person in Israel needs a long-term nursing home, although our rates of institutionalization are low. If that person needs it, the normal basket of services that covers everyone for almost everything does not cover them from that. So the family and the person has to pay for it. And if they can't pay for it, then the state comes in and subsidizes it. But why is that important to the health service? The HMOs, the sick funds, do not see it in their sort of organizational interest to prevent frailty and to prevent institutionalization. They don't have to pay the bill. If somebody leaves an it's institution.
0: It's, it's not their problem. It's the separation, exactly. it's the
1: separation of health services from exactly. social care. So if you have that system, then the HMOs don't, although they invest in the elderly, They don't invest in some of the technologies. And as I mentioned when I introduced myself, I'm a geriatrician, so I spent my whole clinical life dealing with the frail elderly. If you let the sick funds off the hook for the final disposition of the frail elderly, they won't invest in the technologies like comprehensive geriatric assessment, geriatricians in the community, geriatric teams in the acute hospitals, proper discharge planning. If someone ends up in a nursing home, it's not the sick fund's problem financially. Since the inauguration of the health law, the national health law in 1995, the government has promised to include institutional long-term care in the basket of services. And if they were to do that, suddenly the sick funds, the HMOs, would become acutely aware of what they're not doing and they would do it. But the government in its wisdom, or lack thereof, have not taken this crucial step, even though it's in the health law. The health law is written that says that soon the sick funds will have to take on the care of the elderly, including long term institutional care but that hasn't happened yet due to opposition from the from the treasury
0: great to have your insight as a professor in um, geriatric medicine there so that's terrific paper 5 takes the series that we've just discussed, and I suppose it really is, it's articulating an aspirational framework for how Israel's commitments to health can serve as a beacon of leadership for its own future and crossing other spheres of activity, not just in health, and also for other country health systems and driving forward an agenda of fair and just and decent society. What are the most salient points coming out of this paper? Indeed, not just the paper, but really a, a of the whole series, because it's taking everything that we've just discussed and distilling it, isn't it, into a key
1: agenda I think that the last paper does a lovely job. It was written by two people who know how to write, your own editor, Richard Horton and Carl Skoretsky. The message of the series and that paper is, if all of Israel, if the whole society could run like the health system, we would have a much better country. The health system is almost without any form of discrimination or racism. People in the health system look after each other, Arabs and Jews. They're Arab and Jewish doctors, they're Arab and Jewish nurses, they're Arab and Jewish patients, and within the health system, we don't pay any attention to that. People just look after each other, and they look after each other in a kindly and a effective manner. If the rest of the country could look at the health system and, and education, municipalities, sport, If they could do it like the health system, we'd be a better society. The final recommendations were that the government should invest in the health sector. The fact that our GNP percentage of health is lower than the OECD average, that's not right. We can afford to knock up another percentage of GNP for health. There are many places, and everybody knows where they are in a society where there's waste and they could invest more in health it's a question of political will not of resources we we have enough resources to do that i think we should take the strength of our society like for example the devotion to the elderly that we see in this country is something that we need to harness and we can harness it for the benefit of elderly people health research in israel is top notch but the funding for health research in israel is going down and has gone down and is going down and if that Kind of, is that lack of foresight on the part of the government and the treasury to not fund academic medicine and not fund research? We're going to be the poorer for it, and that, this is what's kept us and kept the health system in many ways going. And I guess the the final point: Israel to look outward more, to, to not be put off by the hostility that surrounds us. We we live in a tough neighborhood. I mean, you all know what's what's going on in Syria right now. Just a few score of kilometers from where I'm talking, there's a, there's a massacre a daily massacre going on in Syria. We live in a tough neighborhood and people here are frightened and oftentimes defensive. And I think that the appeal of the last article is to show all of us, Israelis and Arabs and people, our neighbors around us, that if we could do in the rest of society, what we've done in health, this would be a better country and this would be a better neighborhood.
0: Yes, I'm struck by the words optimism and opportunity in the final paper of the series. And I think, would it be fair to say, Mark, but as well as Israel potentially improving its situation, if it could apply it, its progress in health to other areas, it, but it's not just projecting outwards, but it's also, even more than Israel improving itself, it could be the blueprint, the template for so many other nations as to how health can be this bridge where there is conflict and difficulty.
1: I think you're right. And we we get a lot of visitors from sub-Saharan Africa, and they always marvel, especially the the poor people from Rwanda and from, you know, the the Congo and from the the Sudan and these places where where genocide is occurring all the time. And they look at our health system with great admiration. And I think they're right to, I'm I'm not boasting personally, but I think they're right to look at What this country did in health, this country has no resources. This country has sand and sun and lives in a tough neighborhood. And only just in the last five years have we discovered gas in the Mediterranean, but we never had any natural resources. And despite that, our health system is one of the best in the world and our health statistics are terrific. So yes, I think there are lessons for other countries. There are lessons for our Arab neighbors. I only wish we could coordinate and communicate more with our Arab neighbors and our Arab neighbor, you know, our colleagues in Jordan and in Egypt. And soon, I hope, when peace comes to Syria, we would love to share our vision and our abilities and learn from them and and learn from each other. And I, I hope that that this will happen in the near future. Ben Gurion, our first prime minister, said if you're not a dreamer in Israel, you're not a realist. Indeed, I think that's a
0: terrific way. We must close now, Mark. We've done an extended podcast for this Israel series quite appropriately because it's so multifaceted, multi-layered, complex, but always fascinating and interesting. My take on this is, yes, we've got a fascinating insight into health in Israel, but actually what we're talking about is something wider and taller and larger, and that is about health as an instrument for bringing about societal change in the right direction towards just and decent societies. And I think that's what I'm taking out of this series.
1: Amen, as we say, amen.
0: Professor Mark Clarfield, many thanks indeed for all your time and good luck with all your ongoing work in Israel.
1: Thank you to you and thank you to the Lancet for doing this, uh, this series. We appreciate the support very much.